Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. I've seen the future of mobile e-commerce, and her name is Rachel Tipograph. All right, there's my one Bruce Springsteen reference for the show, going back to 75 when John Landau saw the future of rock and roll. But today on Financially Speaking, we're going to meet a woman who is rocking the old school infomercial world through video. Rachel's the CEO and founder of Micmac, which is helping major brands turn social video into sales. Who knew that online videos not only make people laugh, but shop? But as fascinating as her company is, her journey from age 13, I'll get to that in a second, 30 to 32, has been even cooler. In 2014, Forbes named her one of the 30 under 30 who are changing the world. And recently, Marie Claire had her as one of the most 50 influential women in America. And I could go on and on, but I want to cut right to the Haftorah and welcome Rachel. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Now, so for those that are not members of the tribe, I know Rachel got this, but when you have a bar bat mitzvah at age 13, the Haftar is kind of the defining moment of the ceremony. But for you, apparently, the fun began when you started selling your bat mitzvah gifts on eBay, kind of foreshadowing all of your early entrepreneurial spirit by monetizing your life at age 13. I got to hear that story. Yeah. So I got one present that I wanted, which was a digital camera from Radio Shack. (laughs) And I ended up photographing all of these gifts that I did not want. The irony about building my career in e-com is that I actually don't like things. (laughs) I'm more of an experienced person, but I love the speed of retail, which is what draws me into it. Sure. And so I photographed all these gifts. I sold them on this website that I had recently heard of called eBay. I was literally 13 years old. And I knocked on my parents' bedroom door and asked them for a ride to the UPS store. And my mother goes, what are you talking about? And I explained. She then was mortified. I already brought this up with my 92-year-old mom. And she said, no way would I have allowed that. And I said, well. Yeah, it was done. And my dad thought I was onto something. And we actually bought eBay stock together in that moment. And That started my first company where I essentially was the largest garage sale for my town in Bergen County, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I took 20% of everything that I sold for my neighbors. That's terrific. Well, that's great. I love garage sales and our mutual friend, Gary Vaynerchuk, is still out there doing it on weekends and collecting baseball cards. So let's fast forward a few years from age 13 and you were an intern at Saturday Night Live. So what did you take away from that? Obviously, very cool experience other than watching the magic that happens there every week. Yeah, I mean, I think it actually ended up deterring my career in entertainment. So what I realized was usually the glamorous industries have the least glamorous jobs. And it made me actually gravitate towards less sexy industries. That's very true. Yeah. So it was just an insight of wanting to be maybe a big fish in a small pond. Right. Again, another reason why I was drawn to retail. But I mean, SNL is an incredible place. And I was there during a wild time. Like Mm -hmm. it was the Lonely Island crew. Oh, great. Amy Poehler was still there. Kristen Wiig. Mm -hmm. And this is what's so funny. My job on Tuesdays was to come downtown and buy candy for the writers at Economy Candy. <laughs> Micmac's office yeah. 
is directly across from Economy Candy. Oh, that's hysterical. So the li- like perfect. life comes for a slur. That's, yeah, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. yeah, no, those writers need, needed a lot of candy. Boy, that's so true about the entertainment but industry. The, the other aspect, like how I took <laughs> what I learned in comedy and applied right. it to e-com, is that what I noticed when I was working at SNL and just I went to NYU and was around people who were stand-up comedians, is that they were actually brilliant salespeople. They didn't see themselves that way, but they would get on stage and they essentially had to sell themselves to an audience. And the great ones could instantly connect with an audience. The terrible ones would outright bomb. And I kind of carried that with me through the course of my career. And so when I started Micmac, it was one of the insights that I chose to capitalize on is that humor can sell products. Oh, humor absolutely can sell anything. So let's move along a little bit, and this is pretty remarkable, folks. At age 24, the youngest executive at The Gap as the global director of digital and social media. Obviously, I'm sure another great story how kind of you pivoted from Saturday Night Live over to The Gap. Yeah. So I went to NYU. I studied entertainment business. Essentially, it's a program that's between Stern and Tisch, where you could design a major around that. And I graduated in 2009. So it was the height of the financial crisis. Yeah. So my friends and I... Tough year to graduate. Yeah, it was a really tough yeah. year. And we all got jobs in digital marketing because it was literally the only industry that was hiring. <laughs> so fast forward, I got recruited by this company called Undercurrent that ended up getting acquired. And it was right place, right time. It was the hottest digital strategy agency. And we worked with PepsiCo and HBO and Levi's. And there was a guy that worked with me there named Jordan Berkowitz. And Jordan ended up leaving to go to Ogilvy to lead creative technology. And when he left, Ogilvy had just won the Gap business. Uh And all of a sudden, they had a new CMO, a guy Mm. named Seth Bardman, who's very forward-thinking. And Seth wanted a young person, their target customer. They figured it out. Yeah, to run Global Digital. And he turned to Jordan and he goes, who should I hire? And Jordan literally goes, there's only one person you should hire. And he made the introduction. And it's funny because the story has recently come back to me. Apparently, I, I mean, I remember doing this, sure. but at the time I didn't realize how wild it was. But I literally walked into Seth's office. And at the time, there was a global president named Pam Wallach who's back at Gap. Mm-hmm. And on my iPad, I presented them a business plan of what I would do if I had their job. That was the first time they met me. <laughs> and they literally hired me on the spot. Oh, that's great. That's so exciting. And you were, were you in New York or San Francisco? So I was in New York. Yeah. I joined Gap during a really interesting time. Glenn Murphy was CEO. Right. Glenn had this belief that to be a fashion company, one of the brands should have their headquarters in New York. Right. San Francisco isn't necessarily known for fashion. And so no. the global marketing team <laughs> and the global design team from 2011 to 2014 sat in New York. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That absolutely makes a lot of sense. So, so now we get to throw another Jewish or, or is it Yiddish? I'm never sure term out there. And I'll, I'm going to let you say the original name you had for your company and then kind of explain how it morphed into Micmac. And then we'll talk a little bit about Micmac. Yeah. So the original name was Tchotchke. And How do you spell tchotchke, by the way? Well, that's why I changed the company. Yeah. But you could spell it with a T. You yeah, could spell I just, it with a C. I, I, I just, I, yeah. Yeah. No one knows how to spell it. My wife thought TZ. I, I just wasn't sure. Uh, yeah. TCH is, TCH the, is the official, yeah. And the reason why I named the company that is that my whole premise was that I was selling impulse products. So essentially knickknacks. And I got the feedback from my early investors that they loved my vision. They loved me. They hated the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And essentially, I got pressured from my investors to change the name before right. I launched the company. And that's when I decided to call the company Micmac, inspired by Tchotchke. Right. And 
and it was the right decision. I mean, Tchotchke means knickknack, means knickknack, obviously, yeah. for, for yeah. those that don't know that. What a perfect name. So I guess probably while you were at the Gap, you figured this out pretty early on that 85% roughly of all internet traffic was coming from video. And you figured out a way to just totally you know, disrupt the industry. So what was the transition that you saw at the Gap that really led you to start the company? Yeah, there were three key undercurrents that I was paying attention to while I was at Gap. The first one is what you just mentioned. So I'll never forget. It was 2013. I was sitting at my office at Gap and eMarketer releases this report that in the year 2019, 85% of internet traffic will come from video viewing. Well, here we are today. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, well, if that's true, e-com is going to have to be a part of it. Like that's just going to have to happen. The second major trend that I was paying attention to while I was at Gap is that when I started in 2011, Gap.com, the homepage, was the most traffic web page. When I left at the end of 2014, our product detail pages were seeing 5x the amount of traffic, meaning no one was entering the store anymore through the front door. Right. They were using all these side doors mm-hmm. that no one was paying attention to. So the importance of product detail pages. And then finally, the last insight, and this is really what caused me to quit my job, is that when I started, around 10% of Gap's search results were occurring within Amazon. When I left close to 2014, it was close to 50%. Gap, even today, is not officially available for sale on Amazon. It was early signs to me that the major e-retailers were about to become the new walled gardens. Yeah. And that's when I said to myself, someone is going to have to figure out how to make distributed commerce scalable for all brands and retailers. And I decided I wanted to be the person to do it. Wow. (laughs) And you realized that it was really kind of circling back to the infomercials, which is not, you know, it might have been a dirty word at one point, but it really, you kind of came up with the concept of using video. But I read somewhere you talked about that the conversion rate using what you're doing is obviously a lot higher, like 8% versus 1% or 2%. Yeah. The initial impetus for the company was centered around this thesis that I was going to go disrupt the infomercial industry for everyone who grew up with a smartphone as the primary entertainment device. My company has significantly evolved since then. So creative is still a core part of our DNA, but that's not really what the company's about anymore. And to just speak to you about the evolution, like for everyone who's listening, just think about the internet, end of 2014, early 2015. If you had an idea, you created an app because that's how you got venture capital funding. Right. Today, I would tell no one to do that. And sort of that was the first big entrepreneurial learning that I had. So I launched this app in June of 2015. People called us QVC for Snapchat. I essentially was my own video store where I had comedians hawking products. It was like SNL for shopping. Mm -hmm. I did that business for a year and then realized this would only work if I had the scale of eBay, meaning you need 150 million daily active users to build a business that people are going to care about. And I was working with all these global brands like L'Oreal, Kate Spade, Bose, And they all kept saying to me that they wanted to white label my technology, meaning they too believe that the future of e-com is going to be deeply rooted in video. Right. I spent the second half of 2016 out in market. I interviewed over 500 brands and retailers, and I literally wanted to understand why can't you do this yourself? And what I learned is that every company had the same three pain points, which were around creative, user experience, and attribution measurement. Mm -hmm. I'll go, okay. I need to go build software to solve those problems. And that's when I did the hardest thing in my career. 
I reoriented the whole business to an enterprise software model, and that's how we've operated ever since. And in April 2018, we became profitable. You're going to see this on Wednesday, but Inc. Magazine just named us one of the fastest-growing companies in America. Terrific. And it was the right decision. Well, congratulations on that. When the podcast airs, we will look forward to that. So you've had a few years of kind of reflection to think back on what it was starting, you know, starting a business is like. And one of the keys really is finding the right team members. Mm. And, you know, I read you primarily use improv comedians on your 30-second mini-mercials. And and like you said at NYU, I guess that all comes back to working with comedians and seeing comedians. Did you study improv yourself? I did improv as a kid. Mm-hmm. Before we started the show, you mentioned you did theater. Right. So I did theater as a kid. And it's funny, one of the core things about Micmac is having supreme communication skills. And if someone doesn't have confidence in their own voice when they join my company, I pay for them to take improv classes. That's great. I think it's the quickest way to learn how to become an incredible storyteller. I would agree. Of all the theater classes that I took when I was 17, I, I did a program at Northwestern, had a summer theater program. Yeah. I was a cherub. Actually, Charlton Heston was was one of the teachers back then. But the improv classes are what I got the most out of. I mean, and that absolutely has helped me in so many aspects of my life. So you've keyed right into something. So talk about the mini-mercials and mm-hmm. exactly what they are. Yeah. So again, like that was the first version of the company. Right. We've significantly evolved. Sure. Right. But the impetus behind a mini-mercial is this idea of a super short, shoppable infomercial. Today, we do that all over the web. So I do that in every single social channel. I do that in programmatic. I do that in streaming video. My thesis has always remained the same, which is you got to get people to convert in the places where they spend time. So if they're spending an enormous amount of time in Instagram stories, let me bring the Amazon shopping cart to Instagram stories. If that's through video, if that's through static imagery, And if you want to drive sales through content, which goes back to this idea of the mini-mercial, there's creative best practices for every single product subcategory. And that's a huge reason why brands work with us. Mm -hmm. They come to us and we essentially teach them how to do DR, e-com creative that converts. So Amazon a friend? For me, it's a friend. Mm -hmm. I built a business where Amazon's my friend. That's brilliant because for many, they (laughs) built it as a foe and they're not going to survive. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So... Our mutual friend, and somehow I also mentioned him probably once uh, an episode as well, Gary Vaynerchuk, called your tenacity intoxicating and said you usually pivot six times every 15 minutes. So, you know, we've been talking about the ongoing changes, you know, that you've done in the business. But when we talk about the industry itself and shopping and retail and, and of course, Amazon, a past guest that we had on the show, Lindsay Meyer, who is a true thought leader in the field of commerce, and she owns the cool store Batch in Hudson Yards that's also in San Francisco. And, and she's been involved in private equity. She talked on the show about retail eventually being more out of people's homes and creating non-store spaces for more intimate interactions. So if you're going to you know, look into the future, and obviously you've picked up on, on what's happening now, what do you think the future is going to bring for retail? Yeah, I could slice and dice and answer yeah. this question in so many ways. I'll speak to it from the sort of the DNA of what I've been doing and where I see the industry heading. So I've been very, very bullish on marketplaces and wholesalers. So while the media landscape shouts direct to consumer, I personally don't believe in a, that we're going to live in a world where you go to papertowels.com to buy your paper towels and deodorant.com to buy your deodorant. Right. And the big challenges for brands in these marketplaces and wholesaler environments is that they live in darkness with the data. So in terms of future of retail, one, we're already beginning to see this direct to consumer. Like the golden age 
was the year 2015, 16, 17. Now there's 9,000 Warby Parkers all competing for the same customer, and the cost per customer acquisition has gotten too high, which is why you see two major shifts right now happening in retail. One is you see these darling direct-to-consumer brands become available on the shelves at Target. Why? Because it's a distribution play. It's an awareness play. It will bring down their overall cost per customer acquisition. So what's old is new again, meaning Hmm. brands can't survive as a pure play direct-to-consumer. Once they hit somewhere between 50 and $100 million in revenue, they will plateau and they need more distribution. Most of these direct-to-consumer businesses have already been operating this way in Asia. Like there's no direct-to-consumer play there. So that's number one, is that marketplaces and wholesalers are going to have a huge, huge role in the future of e-com. The second is that physical retail is not going to be seen as a distribution center. It's going to be seen as a marketing expense. It's a living billboard, which is also why today you see even faster than ever before a darling direct-to-consumer brand launches and they open up a store on Lafayette Street. Right, exactly. It's a marketing expense. Yeah, yep. In terms of where I think consumer behavior is going to head, I do believe that this generation, this youngest generation right now, will never know what it's like to step foot in a grocery store. And if you never know what it's like to step foot in a grocery store, you're never going to step foot in any type of store. And so for me, the exciting part of the future of retail is really centered around click and collect and last mile delivery. But some stores will survive, but they'll be there really just it's so you experience. can see. So if you, a, if you were at the gap right now, would you be closing every store? I would be closing all the stores that aren't in major cities. Right. And then and I would, closed in my town. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I'd be turning those major city stores into experiential environment where you can get personalized styling, tailoring, trunk packing for camp, like whatever those high-end specialized services need to be. But the distribution is going to happen on the internet, not in a physical store. Whole Foods, what do you think of that? I thought it was a brilliant acquisition. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. But also, Bezos can do whatever the hell he wants. Right. He's literally right now building competitive services to Whole Foods because he wants to continue to win every which way he can. Right. And he he continues to. And, And the younger generation is at least experiencing the grocery store, but it's a different kind of a world. I mean, the whole food yeah. experience is not a grocery store. No, it's I, far from it. This year for my business at Micmac, I've made a lot of investments in e-grocery. So if you talk to any of the major food companies, three to 5% of their overall e-commerce sales today come from grocery. It's analogous to what beauty was 20 years ago. Hmm. It's only going to quadruple year after year. So I've been investing an enormous amount of our product energy into servicing e-grocery. I was thinking about this because I was at a guest on a few weeks ago, Diane Sanfilippo, who's written all these best-selling books on paleo and keto, and, and she's become also now an, an Instagram influencer mm-hmm. through Beauty Counter. Yep. Define for our audience exactly what an Instagram influencer is and, and what do you think the future is there? It seems like it's blown up. It's gotten too big in some areas. I don't know. It's, oh, it's kind of hard yeah, to tell. Actually, Maybe it's just a generational thing. That. Okay, yeah. please do. Um, I mean, to be an influencer, you just name yourself an influencer and you're an influencer, right? Right. It's your ability to move a group of people, right? The word influence is there for a reason. And if you're in marketing, people throw around terms like nano-influencer, micro-influencer, macro-influencer. So a macro-influencer is Kim Kardashian, right? right? Micro-influencer is someone who has like 50,000 followers. And a nano-influencer could be someone like me Mm -hmm. who has like 10,000 followers, but it's 10,000 CMOs who are following me, right? Right. So, Well, Kylie Jenner is a great example. I, I was listening, I think, to 
another podcast and they were talking about the CEO of Shopify. Yep. And they were they were talking about how she literally only has seven employees. Yeah. She built a billion dollar business on top of Shopify and Instagram, yeah. which brings me to my next point. So influencer marketing, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And it's crossover between digital marketing dollars and affiliate marketing, but it's projected in the year 2021 to be a $100 billion industry globally, just the world of influencers and the intersection of those two things. What I believe is going to happen with influencer marketing is that influencers are going to be the next Procter & Gamble, that you're going to see people like Kylie Jenner recognize that they have the ability to move consumer products, Mm -hmm. and they're going to come up with huge product lines across so many different industries, and they're going to sell direct and they're also going to do distribution. And the digital media is figured out. Uh, one of my closest friends is a writer at HuffPost, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much what he looks for all day. My daughter just graduated University of Maryland in journalism. She's working at People magazine. Yeah. That's exactly what she's doing all she's day. She's an e-com editor? She's not, not yet. She's just, okay. just started yet. But, you know, she's doing a lot of the aggregating. Yeah. But, you know, the stories that she's writing about have to do with a lot of the influencers. Oh, oh totally. Yeah. Just the crossover in the publishing world, you can build multi-million dollar businesses on the top of Amazon Associates. Amazon Associates is Amazon's influencer program. So if you were on People Magazine and they said, these are the top 10 items to bring to the Hamptons, when you click on one of those links, people's getting an affiliate fee. And you make millions and millions and millions of dollars this way. Fascinating. Wow. Here's a question I asked Gary's incredible chief heart officer, who I know you know, Claude Silver, and she's just one of my favorite people in the world. And I'd love your take on it as well. A lot of new college grads are kind of being referred, and this was a story in the Wall Street Journal recently, as the most anxious generation to go to work, higher levels of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So as the boss, as a young boss of a rapidly growing business, what's your secret sauce in, in working with the new grads? It's funny. My mother was quoted in that article. My mother has a company called Early Stage Careers that literally is at the nexus of that. Pretty much her thesis is college doesn't teach kids how to get jobs. Right. She's essentially an executive coach for kids in the first 10 years of their career. Anyway, I can tell you, you know, I would say median age at my company, we need to refresh the data, but I bet median age is like 26 or 27, Mm -hmm. but I have people who are all the way up to 45, but we have a ton of young people. Right. And the most important thing is hardcore training. You can't make the assumption that these people have any hard skills. So what I look for are people who are self-learners. So when we're interviewing, I want to understand, do you know how to use Adobe Photoshop? Mm. Because everything's available to you on the internet. You can literally watch a YouTube video and learn how to buy Facebook ads. Those are the people that I hire when they can tell me those stories. I hired an analyst two months ago. The job he had before Micmac, he was an Uber driver. He went to GW. And here's this kid. His mom got sick. He had to make adjustments in his life. And super educated, smart guy and was like, I need a flexible work schedule. And he became an Uber driver. I was like, you're hired because you know that person's humble and they're hungry. Exactly. So that's what I look for. But what you need to do once they're aboard is give them an enormous amount of training. So we pretty much put every new hire on a hardcore 90-day boot camp. Great, great idea. Where we'll hold their hand for the first 90 days. Hmm. And then we have expectations of what the next three months look like, six months, nine months, Right. right? And you just can't assume you can throw them into the fire. They're not going to be successful that way. No, and you have to, and you measure it, which is yep. which is what you're doing. And and I know you just had a retreat recently with yep. your company, which, you know, you can't say enough how important those things are. No, you'll love this. Yeah. So we had a whole session on employee benefits. And 
the thing that my employees are demanding is a 401k. Okay, well, we'll talk after. <laughs> um, and one of my one of the things that we love doing, and I'm not here pitching, so compliance, don't, don't get nervous, it's financial wellness. Mm-hmm. Because to me, the biggest part of what we do in working with 401k companies is financial wellness. Oh, yeah. so, no, they also know. want someone to come in and teach them about cap tables. Right. Like, they're very hungry. Right. I brought Erin Lowry, a friend of mine, who wrote a book called Broke Millennial, into VaynerMedia to do oh, a couple of sessions. That's great. And, I mean, you know, it's really, really important they get this education. All right, so this is kind of a wacky question. I've asked the last few weeks, but I kind of love asking something like this, especially to a self-starter dynamo like you. So 500 years ago, what do you think you'd be doing as a profession? Well, <laughs> I know, I know there's a lot, a lot to that question. And, and, you know, it could be 300, if not 500. I would, but. I would say I would be a community leader. I naturally put myself in that position to organize people and go after a common goal. So if that means that I was leading the local school or the local hospital, or I was moving people across the desert, like I would be on the front lines. <laughs> That's great. My answer to that is a court jester. I, I okay. just, just kind of see myself trying to make people laugh. That, yeah. That's needed too. So this being a financial show, I wanted to follow up on another episode we did called Own Your Worth about women and their relationship to money. Because mm-hmm. the stats, you know, they show that most millennials are, and again, Erin yells at me about this. I'm not trying to pick on the millennial generation, but that's where the stats are. They're abdicating most of their financial decisions to a spouse or to a parent. Mm-hmm. And I find it so hard to believe that in 2019, this this is even a thing, but it really is. And I put the blame mostly in education. I mean, that's my own spin on it, is that this is not taught in school. And I worked very hard to get financial literacy taught in all the New Jersey high schools now. Mm-hmm. But what do you think about that? So I, I've had a best friend, like since I was eight years old, her name's mm-hmm. Lexi. And our dynamic has been exactly the same, but as we get older, the content of our conversations change. We had dinner two nights ago, mm-hmm. and this was the topic. When our guy friends get together, they talk about ways to make money together on the sidelines. When girlfriends get together, that's not the conversation. Mm-hmm. Lexi and I set a personal goal that in the year 2020, her and I are going to make a million dollars in incremental revenue together. On the sidelines. So it's just a side hustle. This is our side hustle. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do it because whenever we say we're going to do something, we do it. Right. And one of the things that we plan to do in 2020 is we are going to launch a one-day financial literacy seminar for women. We're going to charge $2,500 a ticket. We're going to get thousands of women into a room and Fantastic. program the crap out of this. Oh, I've got some great speakers for you on that. Yeah. Our peers yeah. are dying for yeah. it. And. I think it's a few things like, you know, our parents were baby boomers right. where that dynamic that you just described was absolutely true. Like my father's an accountant. Mm-hmm. My mom's an entrepreneur. Right. But she defaulted to my father to make those types of financial decisions. I would say that's the dynamic of most of my peers. Right. So I think it's a learned behavior. And I also think that very, very few of my female friends went to work in investment banks post-college. I think there's a whole narrative around what that work-life balance is like that deters a lot of women from participating. Right. And I think if women say to themselves, I'm not going to become an investment banker, then they don't feel like they need to have financial literacy versus understanding the ways that men have gotten ahead is because they've actually been very diverse in the ways that they make money versus just thinking I'm going to make money nine to five. And that's the thought process that we want to change. So obviously change the education side to yeah, focus but, more and learn learn about yeah, so these the f- things. The yeah. first thing is awareness, right, right? right? Like that's the first step is awareness. After awareness becomes opportunity. 
And so like in the VC world, right, the special term is like SPV. Everyone's putting together SPVs. Right. And it's a total boys club. So Lexi and I are putting together an SPV. Like, <laughs> because that's the only way that things are going to change is if we can create more liquidity for women. Well, it's it's definitely needed, and it's it's not about ROI. It's about ROR. The way a friend of mine, Ted Rubin, talks all the time about it's really the return on the relationships, and and relationships like you have with your best friend yep. is is, is going to make a difference. And and getting people educated, I just hope that that changes because it still surprises me in in my own industry that the numbers are still very very small of women that that are financial. But it's everything planners. that I just said. Yeah. You know, like the dynamics socially are just so different. Yeah. Well, they are. So before I let you go, tell our listeners a little bit about how they can Micmac. And I know you've, you've pivoted and I know it's not the app anymore, but you know, how are they interacting with Micmac every day? You are, you just don't realize it. Right. So if you click or swipe up on any media source, whether it's a Facebook ad or an Instagram story from an influencer, or you're watching Hulu and you click on a Crest ad, whatever it might be, you're brought into my software. So my software outright replaces product detail pages. So if you ever find yourself in an environment online where it says add to cart on Amazon, add to cart on Target, add to cart on Walmart, all within one experience, that's me. So I'm behind the scenes powering all those experiences. And building that software, what was your mentality in finding the, the right coding people, so to speak, or the yeah. engineers? So my head of product is hmm. this guy named Adam. And I love to tell this story because Adam is such a unique person. Long story short, when I pivoted the business, I knew I needed a certain type of person to be in a leadership role technically by my side. I'm a vision person. I can see where e-com is heading in the year 2030, right? But I need a co-pilot to help me get there. And what I needed was someone who also was a vision person because typically when you hire engineers, they want you to tell them, code this button, put the email header here. It's very, very linear and literal. Mm -hmm. And I needed to find an engineer who also was a vision person. And so I called up this guy, this one name came to my head, this guy named David. And I told David exactly what I was looking for. And David goes, I have the guy for you. And he sent me Adam's number. And I call Adam and get him. exactly what happened to you. Yeah, I call Adam, I get him on the phone. We have this amazing conversation for like 30 minutes. And I go to him, where are you right now? And he told me he was on the Upper West Side. This is a Saturday. I said, don't leave. I'm coming to you. And it went all the way up to West 72nd Street. And we had coffee for about mm. three hours. And he quit his job on Monday and joined my company. And he's been by my side ever since. His name is also on the patent with me. Mm-hmm. And we just have this amazing dynamic because Adam is an engineer who really is a product guy who happens to be a born marketer. Wow. He's just so That's unusual. so unique. How do you yeah. combine that? I mean, there's, so there's, there's three very different yeah. people typically go in three different directions mm-hmm. in college or beyond that. And to find someone that can do all three is, I guess, really the magic that's making yeah. Micmac be so successful. Well, congratulations again on the Inc. Fastest Growing Businesses. Is that, yep. but, you know, that's, that's, just, that's just terrific. And we appreciate you taking your time today to share your voice and to quote you again in a Wall Street Journal profile, using your strengths, I can make an impact. And clearly, that is exactly what you've done. And you have so much more time ahead of you to keep pivoting, continue developing your voice, and truly change the world. And I can't wait to see what you do next, Rachel. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So that's our show this week. And remember, when it comes to saving for whatever you'll save for or shop for, more importantly, pay yourself first. Have a great week.